A federal appellate court's reversal of a 2011 judgment that favored a bank over a commercial customer in a case of ACH and wire fraud is one legal experts and cybersecurity practitioners will be reviewing for a while, says attorney Joseph Burton. What makes this appeals court ruling so significant and what precedent has it set for future legal disputes between banks and corporate customers? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group, and I'm joined today by Joseph Burton, whose legal practice focuses on information security law and cybercrime. Joseph, the July 3rd appellate court reversal of a lower court's ruling in the legal dispute between Patco Construction and the former Ocean Bank, which is now People's United, is significant for a number of reasons. For one, it's the first appellate ruling handed down in a case involving ACH and wire fraud. How significant is this federal court's reversal? I think it'll be fairly significant. Being the first appellate case of this type, um, it's going to have precedential value because it is an appellate court case. And as you know, there really are a small number of cases that have considered uh, the question of apportioning responsibility between a customer and a bank. Um, there are probably only uh, a handful, less than five cases. As a, uh, a circuit court case, this will be very important. And also, I think, because it's a case that focuses on what I think are really the uh, the right issues or the most significant issues. It's going to be a, a great start to uh, other cases of this type. Now, Joseph, that's a great point you make, and it's something that I wanted to ask about, the fact that this ruling is significant because it does focus on the quote-unquote right issues. Rather than debating arguments about compliance, the court takes issue with the bank's security practices at the time Patco's account was hit by six fraudulent wires from a legal perspective, why is that so important? Because it focuses on conduct. This is a case which, as compared to the uh, lower court decision upon which it reviewed, uh, there's very little discussion of the FFIEC guidance and the nuances of that guidance and the question of whether or not that guidance did or did not constitute commercially reasonable security. This is a case that focused on what, in fact, was done by the bank to implement security. It focused on conduct. And I think conduct is the critical issue. And it's conduct which makes the difference in whether you have good security uh, or not. And by focusing on conduct, you move toward the goal of better security and not the, uh, worrying about whether or not you're just shifting uh, liability to one individual or another. After all, what we ought to be trying to do in this area is to have the best security possible. Joseph, how do the points argued and reviewed in the PATCO ruling compare with the court's ruling in the Experimental versus Comerica case, the other significant ruling in a case involving ACH and wire fraud? Interestingly, they argue different aspects of the uh, legal principles involved, but in some ways they both address the issue of conduct. In the PATCO uh, decision, the issue uh, in both cases, in the lower court case and in this case, was on the question of whether or not the procedures were commercially reasonable, and then the impact of that determination uh, of the case or the outcome of the summary judgment motion. In the experimental case, the question of commercially reasonable really never came up because in that case there was an agreement between the customer and the banking institution that the security procedures that were applied were commercially reasonable. So the court 
in experimental never really focused on the commercially reasonable aspect. But what the court did look at was the question of good faith under the UCC. And the good faith analysis involved determining whether the acceptance of the authorization by the bank was reasonable or done in good faith. And that involved an examination of the circumstances surrounding that acceptance and the conduct of the bank in doing so. In a lot of ways, it was an equivalent analysis to the same analysis that was done in the PATCO decision, but under a different rubric. And again, I think that's good because in the end, what we're doing is we're looking at the conduct of the parties and how that conduct does or does not affect reasonable security. Now, at the heart of the PADCO case, you say, is the appellate court's determination that compliance does not equal security. Joseph, why is that significant and what does it mean for banks? It's significant, again, because those uh, professionals in the information security uh, area for years have talked about um, the distinction between uh, compliance and security. And there's always been, and I think it's probably a question of human nature, an interest or a movement toward checkbox mentality. If you meet the compliance requirement, if you check off the boxes, you can say you're in compliance, and that's a very easy standard to meet. But it does not necessarily mean that you have good security. By focusing, as the court did in this case, on the question of the security, on whether or not the security steps that were taken, the implementation of the procedures was correct, we move closer to having the industry understand that that's what's important, that it's not enough to just say, I've checked off the boxes and I meet the uh, whatever the written or posted standard is. And moving in that direction, I think, is, uh, is important. And this is one of the few cases out there, both in the banking area and in other information security areas, that make that point. And I think it's a point that the industry needs to have reinforced. Uh, and this case is going to help do that. Yeah, that's a great point. And it just goes, again, to show that even if you're making the right types of investments, it's not enough. And, of course, this ruling that's been passed down illustrates how courts are starting to gain a deeper understanding of what constitutes true security. And I'd like to get some perspective from you there, Joseph. How do you think this case illustrates the fact that courts are getting a better grasp on what constitutes security? Just that point. I think courts understand that, or at least this case demonstrates, a court which understood that the issue is the implementation. And it's a case that uh, illustrates that courts aren't going to be easily bogged down in what can oftentimes be the minutia of discussing and analyzing the various uh, schemes of security. That is a really, really important step I think, to take. It's going to be read, I think, by lots of individuals, both on the customer side and on the banking side, and I think there will be a reaction to that. Now, going back to the ruling that was handed down by this appellate court, in your opinion, Joseph, what mistakes did Ocean Bank make? 
There are a couple things that I think they did, and I think the court points that out. In the PACO uh, decision, uh, one of the things that they did was that there was a uh, scoring process which was put into place for each transaction uh, that a bank did. And each transaction was looked at and was given a risk score. And risk scores above a certain value, I think in this case the value was uh, 700 or 750, were considered to be uh, serious risk. There's another thing that was done in this case, and that was that there was a threshold, a dollar threshold for transactions, which triggered a requirement that when the uh, individual customer signed in or uh, sought to use uh, the account, they had to uh, answer a challenge question in addition to submitting the uh, the normal credentials. Now, one of the things that the bank did in this case, that initially that challenge threshold was set at a, a fairly high number, but then subsequently the bank changed that to a lower number. In fact, they changed it to a number that was $1, which meant that any transaction would therefore trigger the challenge response. That by itself, making that change is not so bad. What was wrong and what the court pointed out were two things. One, they never notified the customer of the change. Two, in doing so, the change brought about an increased risk that the challenge questions might be intercepted and later used because the frequency of the questions was going to be greater. It created a risk that those questions might be intercepted by some malfeasant uh, using a keylogger or other technology on the customer end of the transaction and therefore increased the inherent risk of that transaction, but the thing which I believe the court clearly indicates bothered it the most was that after doing that, when the particular transactions involved in this case generated a higher risk score, scores at 750 or above, nothing was done by the bank to address it. The bank did not employ any procedure to review transactions which appeared to be high risk, either at the time they were done or at a subsequent time. And the bank further didn't employ any procedure to notify the customer that it had detected a high-risk transaction. Those collective activities, that's what made the court determine that the procedure as implemented was not a commercially reasonable procedure. And then what about PATCO? What responsibilities does it bear based on the ruling? Um, that's another interesting thing about this case. This is not a case that uh, says ball game over for banking institutions. That's not it. I think the case has a lot to teach us all about what the critical aspects of the equation are, what we ought to be considering in implementing procedure. But this isn't uh, the end of the day for, uh, for banks by any means. One interesting aspect of the case was the court raises without answering and uh, sends down to the lower court for potential further uh, analysis the question of what is the responsibility of the customer even if the bank procedure was commercially unreasonable. And so it opens the possibility that you could have a circumstance where 
you had a commercially unreasonable procedure that was utilized by the bank, but liability might not be on the bank because there may be responsibilities that the customer of the bank has with respect to how it conducts itself that would either, one, act as a bar to liability, or two, act in a way which might mitigate uh, any damages that were to come out of it. That hasn't been raised before in any other case that I'm aware of, even though the court raises it without sort of deciding it. I think it's important to note that uh, the UCC itself has a provision which indicates that even if you had a shifting from the bank to the customer based on a finding of commercially uh, reasonable, you could have a shifting back in a circumstance in which the breach in security was as a result of some action by the customer. Certainly this case and the other cases that have preceded it by no means uh, could cause anyone to come to the conclusion uh, that the banks are in a terrible position with respect to liability. What if you know the weak point in the system is the customer? That is, if you look at the cases, if you look at this area, the attacks are all at the customer end. It's through some breach of the customer's system that allows for the attack to be launched. And what we've been doing up until now is focused on what the bank needs to do to shore up its end. We're going to have a commercially reasonable security procedure and process in place to repel an attack. We all know that even if you've got one in place, um, and even if you implement it, let's say, properly, you could still have a circumstance where um, the attack is successful. So in that case, you've got a commercially reasonable and commercially reasonably implemented procedure. But the attack was successful. The weak point uh, in the attack was on the customer's end. But the question I have is, what if any responsibility does the bank have knowing that? Does the bank have an increased responsibility to educate its customers or even provide some sort of methodology for its customers? to fortify uh, the customer end of the transaction, whether there's any responsibility beyond education that the banking industry would have where it knows that the weakness in the system uh, is on the customer end. Yes, it's an interesting point about PATCO and the connection to the UCC and what responsibilities commercial customers you know, could have under Article 4A of the UCC. What yes. questions, Joseph, does the appellate court not answer in its ruling? What questions have been left unanswered? Uh, well, that's one, and I think that's an important one, um, it, it, because it was a question, uh, this question of the responsibility of the customer was a question which wasn't even briefed, and the court notes that uh, in the opinion. And I also remember in, in looking at some of the discussion of the oral arguments that the court raised it in oral argument. So that question was not one that was squarely presented or presented at all in the case, but the court raised it and left it unanswered. There's some other questions left unanswered with respect to the other non-UCC counts that were uh, pleaded in this case. Uh, the court in the case determined that the non-UCC counts were not all necessarily preempted by the UCC and left open 
uh, the question as to whether, uh, for example, the, the breach of contract and the breach of fiduciary counts left them as potential counts and sent those counts down to the lower court uh, for further consideration. So whether or not there lie independent actions for breach of contract and or breach of fiduciary duty is something that the uh, lower court is going to have an opportunity to wrestle with. Yeah, that's a nice segue to my next question, because I wanted to ask, what do you think will come next for this case? Do you think a lower court will actually have an opportunity to discuss some of this, or do you think it will just be settled? Difficult to say. The Court of Appeals strongly suggested that the parties might be better served by uh, considering settlement of the case. Uh, That's certainly a message, but it's difficult to know how the parties view this. Litigation is expensive, and this is a case, uh, again, the first case that's gone to the appellate level. So you've had a case that's gone through the summary judgment proceeding. It's been appealed. Uh, That's been expensive. And we're not necessarily any closer to a trial on the merits of this matter. There's a at least better than 50-50 chance that this is the kind of case that would settle. And then, Joseph, before we close, I just wanted to ask what final points you'd like to highlight that legal and security experts might want to focus on based on this appellate court's ruling, and also to talk a little bit about the impact this ruling might have on other bank customer disputes over fraud liability. The important teaching of this case is that in implementing security, banks have to take into consideration the uh, circumstances of their customer. And it's not enough just to have a generally accepted security procedure in place if, one, that procedure is not implemented in a way that makes sense and and particularly in a way that is aware of the circumstances that surround the customer and the customer's behavior with respect to the bank and the customer's accounts. That's critical. That's the conduct aspect that has to do with the actual security and not just the checkbox that says uh, we have multi-factor. In fact, if you look at the FFIEC, the FFIEC guidelines at several points talk about that exact issue. The security procedures which are put in place under the FFIEC need to take into consideration the configuration, uh, the behavior of the customers. And again, it's recognized, I think, in the bromide that's often repeated that compliance is not security. Uh, There are broader implications in other security areas of that exact lesson. Joseph, I want to thank you again for your time today. Thank you for having me, Tracy. Again, we've just heard from Joseph Burton, a partner at law firm Dwayne Morris, where he focuses on information security and cyber fraud. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.